Hello, hello, this is Alex Burkett, and you are listening to The Long Game Podcast. Today, I'm chatting with Jay Akunzo. Jay is a powerful voice in the marketing industry, and really, he's an evangelist for creativity, bravery, and releasing yourself from the gravitational pull of mediocrity, and instead choosing to ship great work. He worked on content at HubSpot, as well as NextView Ventures, and today, he's an author of the great book, Breaking the Wheel, show host of The Unthinkable Podcast, and a brand consultant. In this conversation, we walk through Jay's process for using story and storytelling to transmit ideas and insights and make them stick. Also, why courage and curiosity are crucial traits of creators and marketers, and how he aspires to be the Anthony Bourdain of business storytelling. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Jay Akunzo. I'm excited to do this because I've followed you for a long time. I read your book, Break the Wheel. Oh, oh so, thank you. Oh, wow. I feel like we've, yeah, you I've much. seen you just kind of like on the circuit and all that stuff. So appreciate that. Um, I want to start with this could be an obvious question. I mean, it's on your LinkedIn profile, but I have to ask. Um, you mentioned on your bio that your biggest ambition and maybe grandest delusion is to be the Anthony Bourdain of business storytelling. <laughs> so first off, Anthony Bourdain is one of my biggest influences. You know, I grew up in a small town and I feel like he really triggered a desire for me to like look outside of my world and meet people I normally wouldn't generally approach life, you know, open-minded. And I feel like that was highly inspiring at a young, a young age, but there's a lot about Bourdain that could resonate. So I wonder, what do you mean when you say that? What about Bourdain resonated with you where you put that, you know, in your on your LinkedIn bio. Yeah. 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 It is my, my grandest aspiration slash delusion. Um, I really like B2B. I love the, the world of work. Um, and the content we get about work does not reflect the emotional spectrum that we actually experience in our work. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a lot of it is trite and, and routine and, uh, you know, it's the same stuff rehashed everywhere you go, whether it's a podcast or a newsletter or a blog or social media and, you know, on the extremes, then you kind of get stuff that just has me totally disillusioned. Like one extreme, you have well-meaning people that are posting vapid nothingness, you know, fortune cookie tweets or, you know, self-actualization quotes on Instagram because they want to be an influencer. And on the other extreme, you have smug looking bros who just want to talk about making millions and how to do it faster. And, you know, they talk about the same six or seven or 10 brands over and over again in the media. And it's just, that's never been my experience of work. And my experience of work has always really matched my experience of life. Like it's, it's, yeah, I used to want to be a sports journalist, not because I, I mean, I like the games, but because I wanted to tell human interest stories and sports is a microcosm of the overall human experience. Well, work is an even bigger microcosm of that. And we just don't get it reflected back. And here you have Bourdain who would walk to a new place, sit with a person in their seemingly mundane day-to-day, which sounds a lot like the world of work to me. And he would go deeper and ask simple questions and get profound answers and really show an interest, uh, really go on a journey to understand something and shift your perspective and then back away a little bit and give you space to make sense of it. He wouldn't stuff every detail or every moment full of you know, his five key takeaways or exactly what he would prescribe you do with this information. He wanted you to synthesize it. So he had this awesome blend of like voice and uh, nuanced gray area storytelling. I mean, that's where he lived. He did not wrap it up in a nice, neat bow every time. And, uh, and certainly respect for the audience to give you something different every time and really not care if you like the last episode, he, he's on record saying this, you might not like 
this one because we're going to try something brand new. Um, and he didn't want to give you, you know, the perfect, beautiful soundbite at the very end or the five simple steps to success or understanding based on what you just heard. He respected the audience to synthesize their own meaning. And so as a result, I think you got closer and closer, not only to him as a storyteller, but to the meaning, um, you know, and I think for so for me, it starts with profound nuanced stories told from the seemingly day to day. And then all the other performative or production things that I mentioned kind of rolled up into what amounts to my storytelling hero. That's awesome you bring that up because I think storytelling is at the heart of what I loved about Bourdain. But what I found interesting is he always took his own angle in the story and he's just this punk rocker at heart who I feel like, you know, he he was telling the story of a city and its people. And there's so many different ways you can tell that story. So you, you do you live in Boston? I do outside of Boston. Yep. Did you ever see his his Boston episode? I I'm I've seen almost every well I've seen every episode of the CNN show uh, and quite a few of his previous shows so it's it's very likely yeah 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 so that Boston episode was super inspirational for me he I I don't know if I saw it before I had gone to Boston but I've done I've been to Boston many times since you know I used to work at HubSpot and he started the episode this is an older one it's maybe like 10 15 years ago he started the episode by saying you know Boston's this beautiful city a port city it's it's got this amazing architecture and you know classic history and all that stuff but we're not going to show you any of that stuff <laughs> we're going to show you the Boston that I love and i think he was pretty vulgar in the in the intro like he said like if you don't like it kind of fuck off like actually pulled a quote. He's like, this is about me and my friend, Mike, trying to have a wicked fucking time in Boston. And if you have a problem with that, you can fuck off over to Samantha Brown. And then he proceeds to just go to <laughs> Southie back in the heyday and just gets yeah. hammered and goes like bar sure. to bar. And it's just this totally different look. But I feel like you end up seeing a different side of Boston than you know your typical maybe surface level show. And that's maybe what you were talking about with the di- divergence between like what is common, what is always talked about, what is trite. And then finding that unique angle that kind of lies underneath or like only you could tell that story. Totally. Like asking questions that are not commonly asked, um, going on a little investigative journey through story, through, you know, just curiosity, all these things like he, yes, he went to some, as the name of the show implied, he went to some unknown parts of the world. But I think the parts unknown that he really reached were right in someone's backyard, right in, you know, it's like, what can be said about a food truck owner? What can be said about a pizza joint? What can be said about Boston that hasn't been said in the movies and in ample TV uh, food food shows on TV? He found it. With, with right? storytelling, there's always this back and forth between the audience and the storyteller, though, right? And you mentioned that with regards to yeah. these tweets and like the people, right. you know, the bro marketers and all that stuff. So I assume they're doing that because it resonates to a certain degree, right? It works. It it hits some sort of algorithm. People eat that stuff up. I've noticed myself, like when I try to, you know, I'm trying to build some thought leadership on Twitter, like when I pour my heart and soul into something that I feel like is original, it's often crickets. And then, you know, I'll tweet some trite, banal insight about content marketing, something very high level, and it goes semi-viral. So like, I don't well, know. Why is that like the arbiter? I mean, why is why is Twitter the arbiter? Why is an algorithm built by an ad? We're, basically, what we're doing is we're creating free ad inventory for a social network. So why is that becoming the arbiter of like what is worthy to share? You know, like I interviewed Jack Conti on my show, the CEO of Patreon, and he said something profound, which was there's a difference between what will get clicked on and what has value. These are not the same things. We're conflating what gets reach with what is worth producing, what is worth someone's time. And so like Bourdain was not going to play into those waters, right? And he's going to say to you, this is something that I think you need. It might not be what you want. And I think it's incumbent on all of us as creative people, as communicators, whether you're telling stories like he was or writing a blog or you were a marketer to 
you got to meet people where they're at. Absolutely. But then you have to deliver what they need. Like mm. I think a lot of, you know, call it content marketing or inbound marketing, whatever you want to call it. It's devolved into pandering. It's devolved into, I'm going to prey on their baser instincts. And that's the smug bro version of it all, right? 99% of people get this thing wrong and here's how to do it correctly. And, you know, I'm going to vomit bullshit in a thread. That's pandering to people's baser instincts. I'm f- I'm fearful that I'm getting it wrong, right? Or I don't know any better. And I think eventually people age out of that stuff or they figure it out, right? The people who have, you know, meaningful things to say go, this is, this is crap, right? They learn, mm-hmm. they learn better. And so the game becomes for those, those smug people, arbitrage, right? I'm going to, there's always a new thing you got to know, or a new thing you got to be afraid of. Cause if there's always a net new thing, those communicators never have to go deep, never have to be good at what they're doing, never have to master the craft. They can always just sort of keep tricking people and keep moving their, their audience from the previous new thing to the new, new thing. Um, but for the rest of us, when we're trying to say something meaningful, when we're trying to resonate, when we're trying to spark some kind of change in understanding or an action or behavior in others, we're trying to make things better in some ways. Um, the rest of us, it, it, we don't need to pander. We, we, you know, like the, like whatever they're asking, you should be Google, you should be writing it because when they're going to Google it, they're going to find you. Great. That's a very tiny percent of all the things that that person needs to know about is what they already know to ask. What about all mm-hmm. the things they don't know to ask? What about all the things they didn't know they needed to hear? So whether you're a product innovator or visionary or a communicative uh, content story, marketer, branding, um, visionary, like the difference, I think, between a lot of these base level type content or base level type thinkers and the folks worth following are the folks worth following raise their hand. They go, where we're at right now is broken and I have a vision for what might be better. And I need to give people not what they want, but what they need. And then we have to figure out how far, how close to where they're already at do we need to go to say, listen, this is what you want. I understand that. This is how you're coming at it. But here's all the problems with that. Maybe consider this instead. And now I'm going to make the case for this shift through story, through heuristics, through you know data, whatever it is, is my superpower to show you. It's not just how to, it's how to think. It's how to see the world, which then shows up in every how to. But I think a lot of us limit ourselves to like, it's got to be the tips and tricks and cheats and hacks and because the gurus seem to do that and they fly on Twitter. That does not need to be the arbiter. Nor, and, and I don't think it should be. Mm. So as, as a creator, do you gauge audience feedback? Do you take it with a grain of salt? Do you look at who it's resonating with? Or is it more of this iconoclastic like vision where you just think over the long term, like what I'm saying is true to me. Therefore, like the people who are going to resonate with that are going to pick it up over time. Or right. I guess like what's your balance? Yeah, totally. There, there's a difference between creating things that nobody else sees and you don't care if they see it, which by the way, self-expression is its own reward. I think every creative person needs a private practice. I don't mean like you're an independent agent, like a doctor would have a private practice. I mean, it is yours. No stakeholder controls it, but you. And so whether that's for me, it was blogging many, many years or adding a podcast to that or switching from blogging to newsletters or something that hones your taste and skill and confidence and all these things that kind of you need to do that to wade into waters that are slightly deeper than what an employer or a client would allow you to do at the moment in time, like building your body of work in a way you control. We all need that. Those those come with certain restrictions. Like it's actually not about the audience. It's actually not about any kind of quote unquote result other than my own abilities. Um, but for everything else, you, we do need to see results. And so there's a difference between, I'll say it like this. There's a difference between being a good storyteller and an effective storyteller. So all storytellers speak with some kind of clarity. 
And I think that's where a good storyteller stops. So a good storyteller would, you know, affect, there's, there's a wonderful quote from author Kazuo Ishiguro, a Nobel prize winner who says, stories are about one person saying to another, this is the way it feels to me. Can you understand what I'm saying? Does it also feel this way to you? So can you understand what I'm saying? Clarity is the first hurdle. So let's focus there for a moment. A good storyteller uses a sequence of actions. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. That then creates tension and resolves it. But then this happened. What will happen next? You have questions and you're hardwired to want answers. So you'll continue to listen. Okay, then that happened. That's the resolution. Okay. So your friend can be a good storyteller talking about their weekend. And you're like, that's a good story. He's a good storyteller, whatever. Can they do our jobs? I'd argue not. Because what we need is something more than clarity. We need that next part of the Ishiguro quote. Does it also feel this way to you? Connection. Hmm. In other words, yes, we speak with sequences of events. We create and resolve tensions, why people stick around. But we also ensure and have to go to great lengths to do so that the audience is reflecting and acting based on what they heard. And so sometimes we have to dole it out overtly. Maybe it's audio. Audio is a particularly didactic medium, says Ira Glass. You have to spoon feed people bit by bit because there's nothing to scan or go back to. And so, okay, I'm going to give you the meaning of the story. Is it video? That's a show medium instead of a tell medium like audio is. Maybe I give you space to watch, to observe. That's what Bourdain did with music and B-roll so often is something just happened. I got to give you a little space, a little transition to let that synthesize. And you're going to do the synthesis, not my words, right? Or writing or whatever. So creating that connection is ensuring that they basically move from the action of the story to its meaning. Right. So a story from your friend over the weekend, you're not like reflecting on your own life as a result of that story. Most likely you're not like changing a behavior, taking an action or going to subscribe to his newsletter or buy something from him necessarily. He can still be a good storyteller. But for us, we have to be an effective storyteller. Like we're in the business of action. We're in the business of ensuring others care. And in other words, resonating, not just reaching people, but resonating with them. And no amount of reach can guarantee that they care. So we really need to master that in and of itself. It's its own craft this ability to resonate. resonate. So I sum it up as yeah, go ahead and create all your stuff privately that you want because it benefits you. And then eventually you come out publicly and it, it'll show up in the work for others too. Fantastic. But remember, the job is not to be a good storyteller. The job is to be an effective storyteller. And while good storytellers can grip us, effective storytellers can move us. And that's what we need to do. We need to move others, whether it's moving their understanding, shifting how they think, or mostly shifting how they act taking some kind of action because that's where our results come from. I like that difference between good storytelling and effective storytelling, because I'm sure you've seen this in the marketing space, but I've always struggled with what, what storytelling seems to mean or what people mean when they say that. But something I've been noodling on because I was uh, rereading your uh, Break the Wheel book. And I, I think I read it a couple of years ago, whenever whenever you published it, right? I, re- thank I read you. It was, uh, copy. 20, yeah. 2018. And thank you for reading it, by the way. Yeah, totally. But I remember this, uh, the story that you introduced the book with the story of death wish coffee. Yeah. And yeah, as I was like, I, I was going through the audiobook, which also thank you for narrating it just to go on a side tangent. I, for some reason, like in my mind, I cannot pay attention when there's a professional narrator. I don't, do you, do you have any theories I, on that? <laughs> as a podcaster, it never entered my mind that I'd allow anybody else to read the words. I just like so painstakingly wrote for my book. However, listening back, I remember we had just had my daughter who's now three, but she was an infant. So I was like so profoundly tired when I was narrating that. And then on top of it, we were living in a home that didn't have really like a home office. 
And so like, I kind of had stitched together this little home studio, like half of a bedroom with pillows and sheets and all this. So I'm recording it, you know, like in my office through fits and starts. And I have like a hoarse voice and I, I'm really shouty. Like the, it's funny. Cause you look back at these things that people go, Oh, that was pretty good. And I'm like, well, I've d- if I did it now, it'd be so much better. So thank you for listening to the audiobook. but I like, I'm cringing a little bit knowing you did. <laughs> No, no, I like the rough draft. When it's too polished, it's weird to me. Um, yeah. But anyway, like something I was noodling on during that story is that story is really like a vehicle to transport a kernel of truth or something that you want to transmit, a piece of information yeah. or an insight. And right. you used effectively this death wish story to transmit the truth that like you don't always have to follow the best practices. And in fact, sometimes the inverse of what the best practice is, is actually the best the best practice for you. So I, in, you know, I, I think that sometimes storytelling is this, looming like kind of generic thing but it's like you know if you're trying to transport cargo maybe a train is the best way to do that if you're trying to like get from la to new york like maybe a plane is the best way to do that so there's different types of stories that maybe effectively you know transport those specific types of truths and i don't know maybe this sounds a little esoteric but (laughs) what does storytelling mean in marketing you're totally right (laughs) i I think there's there's two things that i want to maybe pull out from that so because that's such a good point um so one is you know, the types of stories you end up kind of collecting into your bag of stories as, as an author and a speaker and, and a public performer. And then, cause what you're really doing in, as, as an author is, is you're in sales. You're, you're trying to show up everywhere you go digitally or in person and um, spark some kind of change, spark an action, right? Like you're trying to get an outcome. And mostly it's, I want you to see the world a certain way. And I want you to adopt what I think is the right vision for this movement or a new way of thinking about something or a big idea or deeper understanding or whatever. And then, yeah, also like pick up the book, take the course, uh, you know, whatever it might be, hire me to speak, whatever the, the outcome is for a particular author. So authors are kind of in sales, but you you travel everywhere as this sort of like, quote unquote, traveling salesperson with a very small bag of stories and it doesn't feel that way to the audience. So like, I'll put a pin in that, we should come back to it. But the thing you pointed out there was, you kind of, it gets muddied, right? In our, in our world, like what storytelling and story and all these things, which is remarkable to me because effectively what's happened is story, this notion of story has gotten so jargony and so abstracted and so dense even, or maybe it's misconstrued as is something, it's got to be a giant story. It's got to be big. Effectively, what we've done as marketers is we've turned story into a buzzword, which is mm-hmm. like chefs turning food into a buzzword. Like it's just supposed to be what we do. And so back to the Ishiguro quote, when he says it's about one person saying to another, this is how it feels to me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does it also feel this way to you? What he's implying is, and you can kind of put an x-ray lens over that quote. And there's a lot of, I'm this, you're this. I'm saying, you're feeling. I'm saying, you're thinking. It's a dialogue between two people. And that dialogue unfolds by the speaker conveying a sequence of actions that creates and resolves tension or questions, if you will. Um, that's it. It's just so stories are wonderful vehicles about a change or about overcoming something about solving a problem. It's just a communication device that uses a sequence of actions that creates and resolves tension. But of course it has to have some kind of meaning, right? And so that's where you get effective. But what Ishiguro knows that we've lost sight of is you really can't abstract it away. Like it's nice that we have all these posts, like the rationale for story for brands or the science of story, story structure, uh, to adopt, like all these things, they're very abstract. But what ends up happening is we gather up those ingredients and it's all we can carry. It's like, it's really straining us to like, keep it all straight, figure it all out. Then we go to face our daily work and we open Twitter and we see one of those smug looking bros tweet something like how to 10 X your marketing in 10 months. And we go, oh, that seems easier. And we drop all the story stuff. 
And so what Ishiguro knows is that actually it's not about the abstracted story. It's about the storyteller. So it's on each of us to become effective storytellers. And I think we can do that without having a giant story, without having a million stories. I think we can be effective with stories of any size, found through any source, and, and actually told to any audience because as an author, you are forced to learn that you're showing up today on a leadership podcast and tomorrow on a marketing podcast. You're giving a talk to this conference and then that conference. This is a modern group of marketers. This is a legacy brand you're speaking to. It's long form, it's short form, it's text, it's audio, it's video. You got to create a ton of stuff without a ton of resources. And oh, by the way, it has to be high quality and very entertaining and very educational. And I'm very exhausted just thinking about this, right? Like, And so you take the same story and you accentuate, you omit, you add details that this audience might need to hear or that audience might to hear to arrive at the meaning of the story at the end of it all that is perfectly tailored for them. So they go, whoa, that story was perfect for me. It was about a dictionary brand or a coffee brand, Death Wish Coffee, but I'm in marketing and B2B and that was like perfectly tailored to me. Yes, because I didn't just tell you the story. I molded it for you, but tomorrow I'm going to mold it slightly differently for them. And so the, I guess the punchline of this rant here is there's this very like useful technique for storytellers to remember, not only to become effective, to extract meaning from stories and hopefully spark action, but also to customize stories everywhere you go, even if you only have one to tell. Uh, the phrase is, that's the thing about. So you tell the story and then you arrive at this moment where you're like, okay, that's the thing about goals. We don't set goals correctly when it's time to reach higher or do better work. We're actually hurting our own cause. And maybe we should rethink it in this way or that way, right? You, you extract the meaning by getting to this moment where you're like, okay, that's the thing about the theme of the story, right? It's like um, a good story could be told about an obnoxious little boy, a flock of sheep, and a gruesome crime scene, but it is not yet the boy who cried wolf until you go. That's the thing about lying. If you become known as a liar, people won't believe you when you're telling the truth, right? And people, oh, oh wow. Okay. I better not lie right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's affecting me. It, I'm acting as a result. Even if the action is, I understand it better. That's still valuable to our cause. But hopefully beyond that, they go, I'll stop lying. I'll, I'll think twice when I lie, right? So just remember that phrase to tip from a good storyteller to an effective storyteller or to customize the same story for different audiences is that's the thing about. And that it can be a different thing or a different about. In other words, you extract a different insight everywhere you go, depending on who you're speaking to or what subsection of the audience you're speaking to and what they need to hear. It's it's interesting. Like I, I think almost like I'm storytelling is is a way to make something sticky in, in somebody's brain. Um, but I'm thinking back, we we did a podcast with um uh, Matthew Dix, who wrote Storyworthy, and he describes different movie narratives yes. and how Jurassic Connecticut, Park... Connecticut native. Sorry to interrupt, but Connecticut native, just like oh, oh hell yeah. Connecticut. So yeah. <laughs> he was fantastic. I mean, in his book, he writes about Jurassic Park, and it's like he's it's not about dinosaurs. It's about the transformation between, you know, not wanting kids to like loving kids or, you know, and, and it's like, if you just said that the story would be over in a second and nobody would remember right. it, but you right. have this almost, it sounds almost like a negative way to say it, but like a bait and switch. It's like, you start the story by describing this, this death wish coffee company and how they like flip the script and the truck driver who comes in and wants the strong and dark coffee. But if you had just said like best practices aren't always true, it's like somebody could read that and they're going to forget about it tomorrow, but then you give them almost, um, you give them like a, a little hook, like a coat hanger in their brain to like hold something, you know, it's, it's like a, a vehicle, a container that they can like keep that with them. 
by yes. almost like concretizing something a little abstract. Yeah. One of my favorite examples of this I learned about in one of my favorite books. I, I very rarely read books about work, but the one I recommend to everybody is it's called Out on the Wire um, by a uh, creative coach and also a cartoonist named Jessica Abel, Out on the Wire. And it's she follows, she embeds herself with some of the best podcasting storytellers ever, uh, This American Life. Radio Lab, 99% Invisible, Snap Judgment, uh, Planet Money. And she goes into their storytelling process of like how they put the show together. And it's not so in the weeds that it's only for podcasters. It's very useful for anybody doing anything meant to resonate. Uh, and they she breaks it up in sections so you can kind of flip through it like, okay, I want to get better at this part. And it's also packaged as a cartoon strip because she's a cartoon or cartoonist. So she is the narrator. She's outside of the panels along with her, uh, the person who wrote the forward to this book, Ira Glass himself. Because uh, years and years ago, she did a project for This American Life, so they got to know each other, and she got all this access. So it's a wonderful book, super inside access to masterful storytellers. In the book, there's an example of this moment, and they don't use the words good versus effective, but they're talking about like what makes a gripping story? Why would people proceed with you? Like, Why is the story going to stick in your mind, to your point, the Death Wish story that I told at the beginning of the book? Um, why is that going to be sticky? Why is it going to be resonant? And Ira Glass goes on to say, well, let me give you an example. Early in the show's run, they were telling the story about a guy named Brett, this kind of nondescript guy that you don't care about. He's not a celebrity. The name of the episode is not like Brett Smith, the famous person you care about. Click on the episode. No, um, he's on the he's on the New York City subway, this guy, Brett. And Ira Glass is describing this situation. And what he says is, so Brett's on the subway in New York City. It's rush hour. It's mobbed. And down the platform, he sees this guy. And this guy comes up to each individual he meets, stands a little bit too close, says something, and moves on. And he's nicely dressed. He's not like asking for money, but he keeps doing this thing. He'd walk up to someone, say, stand too close, say something softly, and move to the next person. And as he's getting closer, Brett can hear what he's saying. And so I'll just stop there. And I'll ask you, Alex, do you want me to continue that story? Do you want Ira Glass to keep going? Yeah, totally. Yes. Why? Because what are you wondering? There's like a, a chasm, I guess. Like there's some sort of a, a loop in my mind that feels open. Exactly. And like I, I naturally want to like close that and like answer totally that curiosity. Totally. Gap. And the questions are so it's it's really I have introduced questions, or in this case, it's Ira Glass's story. He's introduced questions. Wh- who is the guy? Right? Are we going to learn? Who, are we going to learn that? What is he saying? What will he say to Brett when he arrives at our protagonist? And so the story continues. He gets, you know, keeps going up to each person and Brett hears what he's saying. He's going up to one person going, you can stay. And the next person he's going, you got to go. And the next person, you can stay. You got to go. And then Brett's getting a little nervous, he says. He's like, I, I, I kind of, I'm I, like, I kind of want to know what he's going to say to me. And I was like, he's not choosing you for anything, man. And Brett laughs and he's like, I know, I know, I know. But then Brett finishes the story. Ira Glass finishes that on his behalf. And he says, he walks up to Brett, stands a little too close and says, you can stay. And Brett feels euphoria, which is weird. He knows in his mind that there's no reason to be so excited that this random person on the subway said you can stay, but he feels excited in his mind, but he knows it's it's not rational, but his heart feels really happy. So just to conclude that there, that is a good storyteller in action. Like Ira Glass there speaks in a series of events, a sequence of events that he describes with enough detail that you're there. And he also introduces questions or introduces tension and you want the resolution. You, th- Like you said, the open loop is there and you are hardwired for closure. 
right? So you're a good storyteller in that way, or Ira Glass is, but he's not yet an effective storyteller because mm. I don't think we're really reflecting on anything about our lives, having heard that story. And we're certainly not like inspired to take any kind of action to change anything. And then he says this one little thing in the story, which is, I'm like, I'm like, that's it. So back to the, that's the thing about moment. He goes, well, that's the thing about strangers. It's like, just by virtue of them being strangers, they have some instantaneous insight into who we really are when we aren't trying to impress our friends or the people we work with. Oh, okay. So the story is about something that we might not care about or might care about. It's about strangers. That's the thing about strangers. And then this is the thing it's about. This is the insight, right? right. And that strangers insight applies and to our work. Essentially. Right. So now we're like going to maybe go outside after listening to that and bump into a neighbor that we distantly know, or, or even another stranger, or maybe we're on a subway platform listening to this podcast. Like that is an insight capable of helping us reflect and helping us maybe act. In other words, he moves us from the action to the meaning of the story. So in that moment, he evolves from good storyteller to effective storyteller, right? In, mm. in that little instance, of course, overall, he is a very effective storyteller. Um, so that's an example of like, all of these heady ideas of story and the abstraction of it all. No, when we step into the role of communicators, it's just about what are we doing and how as we communicate. So no one is going to ask you to answer a question on a podcast in story. That's your choice. You got to just decide to do it, right? So that's the posture of an effective storyteller. Then there's also the skill of an effective storyteller. You're not just going to give the sequence of events, even the most gripping sequence that introduces and resolves tension. You're also going to ensure there's some kind of meaning that is extracted, whether you overtly do it like Ira Glass did, or you give someone the space they need to kind of figure it out themselves. But either way, you have to move them from the action to the meaning, or else you're not going to get that in, you're not going to inspire any change in them. Do people get frustrated when there's no clear meaning like when you are gripped with an entertaining mysterious story it's resolved but then there's kind of like no takeaways or how does the audience feel I, in those cases i i don't think that's uh, so i don't think that's ever quite the case if you're paying attention that there's no meaning to the story because like even your friend right. telling you a story about the weekend there's this kind of meta level or foundational meaning of like i'm getting closer to my buddy alex mm. right and so that's, that's great. Um, you know, I'm watching the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon prime and it's like, there's, of course there's meaning, right? There's good versus evil. There's, there's, you know, in the, the classic story tropes, what is the tension? What's the conflict? Is it human versus human, human versus society, human versus self? There's all these like sort of stereotypes or, you know, kind of lanes you can slot into to bring out the tension. And sometimes shows have a lot of those. Um, so like, there's always this deeper meaning in, 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 I think the stories that we really admire, it's really hard, I think, for something to just fall flat and not have any meaning. The question becomes, however, when you're doing this on behalf of a cause, a brand, a nonprofit, some kind of vision you have or change, are you marching people towards that mountain peak that you think we all need to get to? Right. It's like the classic brand narrative, you know, you and I mentioned HubSpot earlier. We worked for HubSpot. Um, for years, marketers were doing a certain playbook and that was fine. But then the social media era came and the internet era came and now consumers have all the choice. So they navigate around stuff they don't want to choose, stuff they don't want. That's the tension. The resolution to the story, inbound marketing, create marketing people love, create great content, be that which they choose because they have all the power, they have all the choice, right? And oh, by the way, we sell tools and services and all these things for that story, if that story is yours. In other words, that is, I have a vision for where we need to go. So when I tell a story that supports that, I want to ensure that the meaning you're extracting 
aligns with that vision. So I think that's the difference. It's really hard to have a story with no meaning, mm. but you should have an idea of why you're telling that story, what you're trying to arrive at. You know, when I tell the Death Wish Coffee story on a stage to a general audience of marketers, I'm very hardwired to know where I'm trying to arrive at the end of that story. So I'm trying to accentuate certain details or bring out big questions that land us there. But then I might talk to a niche audience. Like as a speaker, you talk to some random audiences. I've spoken at the world's biggest dentistry conference, right? Like I'm a marketing person from a SaaS business. What do I have to say to them? I'm an author who loves creativity. What do I have to say to them? I have to figure it out. What is their problem? What do they need to hear? Where am I trying to lead them? And so maybe there's a different, that's the thing about moment. So I think it's a really good question. I think it's actually about intentionality of where you want to lead people. Right. I want to go back to the story about the the strangers on the subway. And I'm kind of inferring between the lines here, but it sounds like uh, the responsibility of a story has a large part to do with um, sort of mystery intention. And then I started thinking about how that also requires on the audience that their responsibility is a certain degree of patience, right, to get to that payoff. And then from that, like to extend further, like a big the storyteller has a lot of responsibilities, but especially now in, in this day and age with so much noise, a large part of that is capturing the attention and giving the promise that it's worth being patient um, and actually getting to that resolution. Because like yeah. in my own life, right? Like I read Dune a couple of years ago when I knew the new movie was going to come out and it took me like, I don't know, 50, 80 pages before I was actually interested, but I was patient enough because I had so many friends promise me that it was worth it. It was almost like the social proof promise or like back in the day when Game of Thrones was the thing, I had friend plenty of friends say, oh, I watched the first two episodes. I just couldn't get in. And I was like, please watch until the end of the first season. You're going to like it. <laughs> so I don't know. Do you think that one, that's true? Like there's a big yeah. impetus on like the, um, the initial kind of promise. Like, do you think that's kind of like the main hook that gets somebody in? And is that getting harder nowadays? Like, I feel like there's yeah. so much noise and people just want the, you know, just give me it, just give me uh, like, give me the TLDR. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting problem. I think, um, I think when we talk about like, oh, the world's trending short form because you can't hold attentions or attentions are shortening. I don't think people don't have a lower tolerance for long form things. They have a lower tolerance for mediocre things. Mm. And, and so that's what people are saying is like, oh, you got to make snackable content or like content marketing takes forever to yield results or people don't spend any time with this stuff. It's like, yeah, because they have endless choice of amazing things. So like, you have to up your game. You have to understand how to be an effective storyteller. Um, you have to understand how to, to hook people, but also deliver on the hook. So I think in a bygone era where there's less choice, maybe you can kind of like put the hook aside and bury the lead a little bit and people take a while to ease into it and blah, blah, blah. Fine. Today, I think what we're experiencing is the other extreme where people are basically pure hook and they don't deliver on the promise, right? They're super hooky. They're like 10X results in 10 days, right? And then what they give you is like, number one, have a website. And you're like, <laughs> all right, I'm out. You yeah, know, like clickbait, that's right? hundred percent. Like that, yeah. is, that is pure hook, pure promise, not delivering. It's an open loop that feels burning. I really want to know the answer. I really want closure. And it's so unsatisfying. It doesn't match. The, the stakes were raised to the nth degree, 10 out of 10 intention and the resolution what went one out of 10. And so now you have this misalignment between what was promised and what was delivered, which is awful for marketing, for sales, for communication, bottom line, for trust. That's what this is all about. It's about trust. I mean, that's our jobs. There's only two levers of marketing. There is, can you earn trust? Can you spark action? I think we get into trouble when we don't know this thing we're doing. What is it meant for? Are we trying to earn trust? 
Are we trying to spark an action? Sometimes it happens at the same time, mostly not, right? So like, have we earned enough trust to ask them to do this thing? Are we trying to skip ahead for our own gain? Cause we haven't actually laid that groundwork. So that's, you know, that's the, the two levers we have to pull, but so is it getting harder? No, I don't think it's getting harder to, um, hold attention or even grab attention. I think it's getting harder or the, the hard part is we have to be way more intentional in selecting our audience. In other words, we can't have happen what you just described about Dune. We can't have the people who are like, maybe this sounds somewhat relevant, or I could get this information everywhere. I happen to find it here. We need to go further and harder towards our core beliefs, towards the premise. Like we need well-developed premises of podcasts or video shows, well-developed theses or open loops or the purpose of the piece we're writing today. It, we just have to have a lot more clarity before we begin as creators. And like I said before, if you have a private practice, a lot of that clarity is hard won through creating. You're slogging through the jungle and you found a path. It's really hard to pick that out in theory, which is why so much clarity happens in the making process. And if you can't do it in a day job, do it on the side. So when you arrive at the day job, you're better. It's like practice and the game. So I don't know if it's getting harder uh, once you start producing the piece, because I think the principles are always the same. I think now it's incumbent on us to really lead with the things that will bring people way into our corners initially, instead of like a lot of milk toast content or a lot of quote unquote relevant content that really fails to do anything but get in front of people. Cause that's not the job. It's not the job is not getting in front of people. The job is to ensure they care. So in our arms race for reach, the premium marketing skill today is resonance. Did you always know you were interested in storytelling like as a kid did you oh, yeah. read a ton of fiction and oh, fantasy yeah. and and constantly yeah. constantly like how did, was when, when was the first time you knew you were interested in storytelling and this was going to be something I, you were going to be heavily I would involved do? in yeah something i would do i'm not so sure about that question i think it was always like you know i had wonderful english teachers in grade school and in high school and i remember my high school english teacher mr shred john jack shred had a an enormous impact on me he was this sort of like short squat little guy round glasses that and like he always had a little flop sweat on his like wispy gray hair and really red in the cheeks when he'd read us like huck finn or gatsby and but he would make these things come alive like he was a stickler in the margins what he married for me was the slog and the commitment and the obligation of the practice and the emotion and the awe and the reverence and the respect for the craft and the kind of the outcome with the audience. Because on one hand, he's measuring the margins of our papers to ensure it's uniform. And on the other hand, he's reading us Huck Finn, like balancing a tattered copy on his, you know, away in his arm outstretched. And, or at the end of Gatsby, he'd reach outside the classroom with the, that final line, like something was out there, the light away in the distance. And I'm like, I know nothing is out there. Like I just came in the door, nothing is out, but something is definitely out there right now, you know? And so it was that beautiful marriage. And I think that's like why I like this craft so much is here's all these marginalia, quite literally, that we can control. Here's all this stuff. You know, why am I shipping? It, I, take a, I take a new girl approach, or sorry, not new girl, um, mean girl approach to shipping. You know, on Mondays, we wear pink or whatever the line is. Mm-hmm. On Fridays, I ship. Why am I shipping? Because it's a Friday. Not because I'm inspired. Not because mm-hmm. I feel good. Not because this is the best idea ever. Because it's Friday. And on Fridays, I ship. Um, so there's an 
obligation. There's a craft. There's a certain ugliness to what actually goes on in the minutia, but that's where it happens to get to, as Bourdain said, this golden moment where you look at something and you go, that's pretty good, Mm. right? This appreciation, this addiction you feel in that moment. And that's why it drives me so bonkers that like creative people don't consume their work. They're like embarrassed by it. Or they're like, "Ah, I never watch my speeches. I never listen to my podcasts. I never read my writing. You just work so hard to make something exist that didn't before. Take a moment and just appreciate the fact that it does. And then, oh, by the way, it's game tape. It's the ability you have to reflect back on your work and be like, oh, I felt bored in that moment. And if I felt bored in that moment, the audience felt twice as bored in that moment. So I better like re-engineer something next time. So every time I publish an episode of Unthinkable, I'm so, I still geek out. We're about to hit 200 episodes. And that's just of that show. I've made shows for brands for part of my career. And I've probably done over a thousand episodes of just podcasts to say nothing of video. And I still see it show up in my podcast player alongside my hero shows. And I'm still like, this is so cool. I worked so hard for this. I'm going to go listen to it while I walk the dog and appreciate these moments. And those little tiny things I did in the edit that made me cackle to myself alone in the office. I want to experience those when it's not in the waveform, when it's not like a sort of staccato or broken up listening experience. I want the whole thing. I want to enjoy the meal. And while I'm doing that, yeah, I'm picking up pointers for future me to try and get better. Yeah, I, I I tend to like not black out, but I, I get so tunnel vision in these conversations that I actually, you know, we publish them about two months later because we've got a good backlog and I listen to it again and I'm like, I don't even, rem- this is awesome. Like this was really insightful what the guy <laughs> said here. So it's kind of like, I get the um, almost first impression that an audience would, but I am, um, I'm pretty ruthless on like the um, game tape aspect too. Like I really comb yeah. back through and I try to improve my craft. Like, I think that's one aspect of taking it very seriously and something that I've heard comedians talk about, right? Like they tape themselves and they go back over their performance and they're like, okay, that didn't land. Like, I got to fix that. Like maybe beef up the premise a little bit punchline, maybe like add two seconds there to like, let it resonate. And they go back and that's how they perfect their performance. You know, it's like George Carlin, incredibly meticulous. Right. And it's so uncomfortable to go back through and see yourself, especially hearing your voice for most people. Yeah. That's why I love like Mike Birbiglia's podcast, Working It Out, where he talks to comedians in part, the episode is about working out material with each other. And the, like the, the wordsmithing they're doing is so, so detailed. And, you know, as an author talking about resonance, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out, is there a book on how to be their favorite, how to be an effective storyteller, how to resonate? I don't quite know what the idea is yet, but resonance will play a big role in the future book. And it's like, okay, well, what is the definition of resonance? And also like, oh, it's from, it's from audio. It's from like a frequency in science. Okay. What does the science say? You do these weird things that feel like you're like down this pinprick of a hole in the ground. Mm -hmm. You're like way down this very narrow thing, but then you start to figure out like, okay, now I can go back up to the surface and really have an impact there and like really dig this well broader. Um, You know, the other day I was at a content marketing world giving a speech and I was talking to my friend, Ann Handley, wonderful writer. Like if you're in marketing and you want to learn how to write well, like she's our, she's a, she's the person, right? She's author of the bestseller, Everybody Writes. The second edition's coming out this October. She's got a really popular newsletter uh, called Total Anarchy. We were talking about her, her brand new talk she debuted. And we weren't talking about like, you know, we did say like, oh, that was awesome, whatever, big, big things. But then we got really detailed. And because she would make, she, she used this um, point from Stranger Things, the show, their captions have been wowing people that the human written closed captioning is super descriptive in Stranger Things. And there's a lot of press about that right now. And they use words like squelchy and moist and things like that to describe the monsters. 
So she had played that up. And then she got to this perfect moment in her speech where she was saying, instead of creating content like this, create it like this. Instead of this, create it like this. So it was instead of bad, good, right? She was doing this comparative moment to like rev you up. And I was waiting for her to land where she would say, instead of dry, moist and squelchy. Like it would have been mm-hmm. the perfect encapsulation, like nice little rounded edge or period on that sentence. And she didn't, she didn't deliver it, but I could sense that it could come and wow the audience. So afterwards, that's what we we're talking about. I literally said, like a comedian, I'm like, I wrote a line or I wrote a button at the end of that bit for you. Like, let's talk about it. And then we started going down this rabbit hole. And so like people will say, oh, I don't have time for that, or that's not, I'm not a professional speaker, or I'm not Ann Handley. And all I'll say is like, no problem. Do it once in a while or do it once. And what you'll see is this sort of cascading effect where it's like getting a sniff of some delicious cookies in the kitchen next door. I guarantee you're going to follow that scent for the rest of your day until you get the cookies, until you're like this, I created something delicious here and I'm I'm tasting it and it's awesome, right? So I'm not asking you to like suddenly be Anne Handley or suddenly have all the time to focus on your craft the way she does because she is a professional author and speaker. But once in a while, we have to reflect. We Because if we're not reflecting on our work and the goal of an effective storyteller is to inspire reflection in others, how do we expect for that to happen? It, it won't. And we're going to get this banal commodified content day after day after day that is ineffectual. So it is in the name of results that we're doing this. This is not some woo-woo conversation. You're trying to spark action. This is the path to it. It's all the little moments add up to do that. It's not just the big stuff, which I think is profoundly encouraging because we control those far better without more resources, without having some magical pipeline of big, big stories no one's told. Like The beauty of all this resonance stuff is it's the stuff well within our, our grasp no matter the resources we have. We can't all have a million followers or people paying attention to us. We can't all be on the keynote stage, no matter how hard we try. And I hope more people will. Um, But man, we can control the moments that cause someone to throw up their hands and go, oh my God, that was for me. Yeah. I want to take one nugget that you mentioned there and kind of pull that out a little bit and and send a hot take your way. Um, I'm trying to distill patterns that I see in great content marketers, which is really like a the facsimile for like creatives, people who, you know, think outside of the box, like things that, you know, you can always index on past experience, but it's usually priced in. So what does like an underdeveloped, you know, like hidden talent, what do they exhibit? And I think that um, curiosity is the big thing. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of a bedrock of like creativity in many ways. And because I was just thinking like that... Um, uh, the stranger things thing, like normies don't notice that stuff, (laughs) you know? And like, I'm the type of guy who I go for a walk and I'm like, Oh, I wonder what that leaf is. Like, I wonder, you know, does like vitamin D absorption, like depend on the time of the day. And I wonder like, to what degree, and like, my brain is constantly filled with these things. And I, it's like this loop has to close. So then, you know, I go research most of these things and end up in rabbit holes. Um, I found, I, I give this example too many times on the podcast, but I watched Malcolm Gladwell's masterclass and it's interesting hearing how he like structures, you know, his articles and like how he does his yeah. research. But what I found the most interesting is that this guy is pathologically curious and passionate about weird things that nobody else ever seems to care about. The yeah. thought might enter their brain, but he can't stop until he figures it out. You know, he walks through a grocery aisle and he sees that there's a hundred brands of mustard and like one brand of ketchup. And he's like, 
why is that? You know, and then you get this like <laughs> 10,000 word New Yorker piece all about that. He noticed <laughs> something. Isn't that funny? It's just something yeah. mundane that he noticed. Uh, and I was listening to the podcast I mentioned this morning, Mike Birbiglia is working it out and they re-aired an episode with comedian Pete Holmes. And Pete was saying like, he he's he gets very mystical and just existential that that guy and he was talking about how like it's kind of nuts this life thing you know we're like we look outside at at the sun which is a, a star that happens to be close enough to warm us or like we don't stop to think it's it's weird that we're buying pants like you know he just some people will just like go through those motions and like fake it and he's like everyone else is like oh this is a little weird or you're noticing things he's like so if you're sensitive and Berbiglia talked about a moment in a YMCA pool when he was a kid and smelling the chlorine and feeling the moisture like it was somehow about to rain indoors mm. and pete stopped him he's like okay so for the listeners if you felt what mike just felt when he described it if you know exactly what he's talking about he's like you're like 70 percent of a comedian already because you're sensitive and so mm -hmm. i think that's what we, we need more sensitive marketers executives people in business where where it tends to be colder and more callous, right? Where it tend, we tend to sort of like either have come from a culture of gray cubicles and drab spreadsheets, or it is still that culture. It's it's sort of prioritized because it's somehow like cold, hard facts, numbers, finance, right? But actually being sensitive to the world doesn't mean you weep when you see a dying flower. It means you sense things. It means your spidey senses tingle. Like, why is that? Or this sucks and no one is calling it out. Like that's where innovation happens. That's where creative leaders emerge. That's where really groundbreaking ideas impress people, inspire them and cause that action, like to become a member of your audience, to buy your product, to join your cause and your movement. And we don't have enough of that, that sort of sensitivity to the world. And so the analogy I use is always very similar. If you want to start that process, if you want to like either reignite or ignite that curiosity, think of a, think of the analogy of lighting a match. like. Find what frustrates you about the audience you want to speak to, the community, the thing they're going for, the industry. That's like lighting a match. Like before I wrote Break the Wheel, I was like, why is there so much basic commodity average content? We don't aspire to be average. No one would admit that. So why is that like the norm for what we mostly create? Right. So that was a match I lit. And mm -hmm. what most people do, because when you hold a match too long, what happens? You get burned. Right. It's pretty useless just to light a match. And so that's like mostly Twitter. It's like mostly people just like annoy themselves or others or, or complain or get frustrated, like because they just let their frustrations hurt them. Mm -hmm. But a creative person goes, oh, I'm going to light some kindling now. That's curiosity. Like this sucks. And then you start going, huh? Why? Yeah, it does suck. Does anyone else see it this way? Back to the Ishiguro quote. Or why does it suck? Has it always been this way? Who does it differently? What can we learn in history? What can we learn in science? What other examples exist that like reaffirm or fly in the face of this feeling I have or this observation? And you and questions lead to questions, lead to questions, lead to questions, which other people go, you're a genius or you're so prolific or you have this insight. And you're like, no, I'm just really frustrated and really curious. And I'm asking a lot of questions. So from the match to the kindling, to this like raging fire of creativity. But to your point, it is this, this trait is, is, is curiosity. And like, it's just not present enough in our work. It's very hard to, I, I think people get in, you know, their brains start to like develop grooves and they, they do the same things and they kind of get on autopilot. And I've found that like, I, I end up like that sometimes. And the way I've gotten myself out of that and kind of 
more into a mindful state of noticing of sensitivity. Travel helps. Um, I find that like talking to people with different backgrounds, different viewpoints, like that usually shakes me up. Even taking a different walk when I walk my dog, like basically anything that I can do to like get myself outside of the normal autopilot mode. And then I start thinking and, oh man, uh, reading biographies about people who think like this, uh, there's that it's a really popular biography on uh, Leonardo da Vinci and it starts out. It's he's just like the, the ultimate case of somebody who's like perennial, perennially curious, but yeah. um, it starts out with an anecdote of he, he had like several pages in his notebooks, just diagramming and writing about um, the motion and speed of a hummingbird's tongue, you know? And like, he just couldn't get this idea out of his head and he kept trying to like figure it out. <laughs> it's like reading stuff like that makes me think like when I go for a walk or something, it, it makes me wonder more about the world in that same way. I love the example of walking on a different side of the street. So why mm-hmm. does travel get held up as one of these things that inspires you, right? Like you go on these grand adventures or see these amazing things in the world and you, you're you so inspired and maybe so creative or whatever. I don't think it's that you're staring at the Grand Canyon or the Mona Lisa or a jungle. I think it's that you are forced when you are not in the routine, in these daily grooves you've made for yourself to be very mindful of everything around you. In other words, it is a hack to be more sensitive to the world around you. And so that's what travel does. But we can engineer little moments of that constantly, right? I think frustration is one of those because the frustrating mm-hmm. the, the frustrating moments cause you to break from your like mindless flow. Um, there's this psychological phenomenon called cultural fluency, which is when things are as they always are, or as you think they should be, you just kind of go with it. You just go with it. Um, there's like actual studies done that like, you know, if you were to like go to a barbecue and the plate matches the holiday, you take a lot of food because it's a gorge yourself type holiday. But if the plate is like Halloween and it's 4th of July, it breaks you from that flow. And you're suddenly Hmm. aware that, okay, this something is off. I'm paying more attention, which means you pay more attention when you scoop food onto your plate. This is from a, a, a researcher in, in Chicago named Jim Murray. Um, and so like it breaks you from your cultural fluency. It breaks you from the daily mindlessness of decision-making and you know the banalities of life to travel. Again, you can engineer that every day. Moments of frustration do that. Questions do that. Crossing the street to walk in a different direction does that beautifully. Um, routines are great. But when we start to cling to them too much, we start to sort of numb ourselves to the world. We're not sensitive, which then dulls our creative output. Um, so I'm not saying you have to be this like radical all over the place, you know, like kind of traveling, you know, with your guitar everywhere. There's a cultural stereotype about that. But I am saying once in a while, pay attention to those frustrations. Ask those questions that are a little scary that no one seems to be asking. Speak up about the stuff you think is broken where people are not saying it is. And they go, oh my God, yeah, why? And you go, I don't know. I'm going to go figure this out. I'm going to go ask. I'm going to go investigate. I'm going to create. Cross to the other side of the street. And suddenly you find yourself way more creative. I wanted to um, ask you about another thread line that I'm thinking through, um, kind of the flip side to curiosity or, or maybe a compliment. So I think if you're just curious, you can end up down these rabbit holes of like, well, you can get lost in rabbit holes and you can kind of get lost in the pursuit of perfection when it comes to creating the actual content. So something I've noticed, um, I think you can disagree with me on this, but uh, I think your podcast and a lot of your work, a thread line through it is creativity, right? It's how to step outside and be creative. Like that's a very broad umbrella, but something that I am thinking about is that I think courage and bravery 
maybe are themes that underlie that. They're just underneath the surface of creativity. You get an episode, I think it was called Working Bravely, you know, that talked about like literally the first step was just like asking to be put on stage. It wasn't about giving a talk. Right. It wasn't about giving right. a successful talk. It was about shipping. Yeah. And you had mentioned that word shipping too. We ship on Fridays. So would you agree with this? Um, and why do you think these traits, because I've heard a lot in your work about bravery, about stepping outside, break the wheel, I, I could argue is literally all about bravery and less about like creativity and outside of best practices. So why do you think those traits are salient for you and your work? There, there's so much in there. I, we should probably pull out two two things. So there's mm-hmm. the um, idea of sort of productive curiosity, because yeah, you can go down a rabbit hole of intellectual curiosity and never ship anything, or you're like... I'm going to write this thing about this concept, but I didn't do like a statistically significant analysis of every research report ever written about this. Right. So there's this, there is sort of a delay towards perfectionism. Like it is a problem sometimes with going down those rabbit holes. So we should talk about that. We should also talk about this idea of bravery, but let's start there. So on the show, we talked to these two marketing entrepreneurs named Andrew and Pete, and their brand name is Andrew and Pete. And they would go on stages. That was their act, Andrew and Pete. And, um, before they were like marketing world famous, they, you know, I'm talking like thousands of people have seen them speak at a given time. Um, they were trying to just get out there. They were just trying to get on the circuit. And what they said was, you know, we had some ideas, we had given some talks and we're like, all right, our audience is small business owners and entrepreneurs, maybe marketers. So we knew like being on podcasts would help. And they said, well, the first step to being on a podcast was just to get on the first podcast. And so they criticized on the show, the idea that like, you have to work harder to get on all these podcasts, or you have to work smarter to get on these podcasts. They're like, I think you have to work more bravely in most Mm -hmm. of our scenarios. And so they pitched a much larger podcast than they felt ready to actually pitch. And the guy said, yes. And so their very first podcast was to like thousands of people instead of to like a few hundred. And he, they were like, we didn't work any extra, like it wasn't more difficult to pitch that podcaster than someone with a smaller audience. We didn't have to work like smarter somehow. There wasn't like some re-engineering of our schedule or our life to pitch that person. We just did something slightly braver. There was more fear present and we proceeded anyway, right? Because if you are like me and have kids or you just like Disney and Pixar movies, like you hear over and over again, like, like I'm scared. Oh yeah, I know it's okay to be scared. Bravery is not no fear. It's proceeding even when you are afraid, right? That's what courage, mm-hmm. that's what bravery is. Um, so that's what Andrew and Pete have done all throughout their careers. And the way I frame it is, you know, you think of second order effects, like you're like, oh, if I do this, this will happen, but then that'll lead to all these other things. I think there are second order problems and we focus on second order problems to our own detriment. What mm-hmm. I mean by that is, say you wanted to create a podcast yourself. And you're like working really hard to try and figure out the perfect podcast. And it's all like, ah, I got to do all these things and it's got to be great. And I'm the biggest guest and all these things. Delay, 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 delay. Why? Because you're focused on a second order problem. Brilliance. You want the podcast to be brilliant, but you actually aren't facing that problem yet. You're facing the first problem, the first order problem, which is momentum. You haven't started. You've never made a podcast before. So you need to make the switch from not having podcasted to podcasting. And then once you're podcasting, once you're like, I know how to do this like mechanically, then you're like, okay, how do I make it amazing, right? How do I close the gap between what my vision is and what my skills are allowing me to do? I'm going to do that over time. So focus on the real problem. You have a momentum problem, solve that problem. Like you're trying to engineer the best written piece in the world, but you don't write ever, write anything. Even if you don't ship it, right? That's fine. I wish you would, but write anything, then make it better or do the next one 
in better fashion, with more confidence, what have you, with a better handle on your voice, right? Solve the brilliant problem later, the brilliance problem later, because you don't have a brilliance problem. You have a momentum problem. So that, that's the idea of working more bravely, I think. Yeah. It reminds me of this concept that I think Laura Klein had written about on Twitter called yacht problems. And she's like, you know, people will worry about like, oh, will my infrastructure scale with millions of users? And it's like, sir, you haven't made a single sales call. Right. She, she, I've heard <laughs> champagne problems. Yeah. Same thing. Champagne drank on the, on the yacht, I suppose. But, but I think a lot thing, of that's fear. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say it is, it is based on fear, um, which also brings us to perfectionism. That point you made earlier, because mm-hmm. that's fear too. Right? People are afraid perfect, of what happens if the big podcast get, or interview says yes. Like what, what happens then? Like we're going to fail on the big stage. Nobody can accuse you of failing if you play it small. That's very true as well. It's like, I need to build myself up to be worthy of doing this. I mean, we all have this. Like mine is probably pitching a brand new show, like putting together a pitch deck for a show and trying to pitch maybe a, a, a case for a show and a pilot to a network. Like that seems to be currently like the next area where I need to work more bravely. And it's not going to take me any more effort to pitch the owner of a podcast network that I know and could email and somebody whose email I could find or Twitter handle I could find. Same amount of effort. I don't have to work harder. Same amount of smarts. I don't have to be any more clever. I just have to be a little more brave. Um, But I do want to come back to the curiosity thing you mentioned, because I think there is a self-destructive version of curiosity where you just navel gaze too much or go down a rabbit hole too much. And it, it just becomes this this way of sort of continually debating, oh, I'm not ready, or I have this next question, nothing comes out the door, right? And that's mm, a problem. I need to learn more. I need more research. Yeah, I'm not ready yet. Yeah, right. And I think like that's a result of perhaps, a, it's, it's a lack of focus. Um, so for example, we talk about brand story a lot, or brand positioning, or your brand's mission, or editorial mission. I think mostly what we see is these things on the homepage, the about page, all our social profiles, these things for the brand are from us to the audience. It's a way to differentiate to the audience. But what it should also be is a way to harness, both spark and harness, the team's curiosity. Because if you're really saying to the world, um, you know, one of my favorite examples is a company that got acquired recently, Lessonly. They sell learning and development and training software to salespeople. Tons of comp- competitors, ton, like a saturated category. I think they said they have 80 domestic competitors and they are all about, or were before they got acquired, practice. They're like, salespeople need to practice more. It's not about the gift of gab or a script. So I love this example because that's a unique point of view. Great. That's their mission. That's their premise, whatever. That should inform the team. It's not just a differentiator publicly. The team should go, well, we're all about practice. So we got to harness our curiosity and sort of put on a practice colored pair of glasses to see the world. So now anywhere we go, like to your point about going outside your echo chamber, going for a walk, reading about this, learning about this, you know, I'm interested in comedy, whatever, you're seeing it through the lens of that premise or that mission or that change you want to spark in others. And that allows you to focus your creativity or focus your curiosity. So it's not purely like I happen to be curious about this. It's I'm curious about this, but then I have to translate it back through that lens to make sense of it to my audience and also to myself. And so we talk about brand positioning a lot, but rarely in the context of it's supposed to focus your team. It's supposed to harness their curiosity and their productivity, as well as differentiate you to the audience. 
Mm-hmm. As a content marketer, do you? I'm, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but I know you had talked a lot in the past about this quantity versus quality debate. And I feel yeah. like this is where you can sort of break that dichotomy and, and call it what it is, which is a false dichotomy. And it's like, if you're yes. aimed in a correct direction, if we used to do deadlines, like we we're like, hey, no matter what, we're going to publish four times a week. Like that's just what we do. I think journalists mm-hmm. go through this, right? Like there's no writer's block, there's deadlines. Um, and then you've got like sort of your brand mission, wh- whatever kind of like hones that focus. Focus, and then yeah. you you surprise yourself by you know producing more than you would have, and sure sure enough, the quality is just as good, you know. And you you just amp up that pace because you sort of like have a higher standard, you have like a concrete goal that you're aiming towards, and then you can funnel all of that creativity, all of that research that you are already doing, all of that yep. thinking you are already doing, and now it just has an outlet. Yeah, there's no there's no such thing as as being the best. There's no such thing as shipping great work. There's just getting better every time, right? That's it. So when you bring the, the missing variable in this quality quantity stupid debate, because these are not on the same spectrum. These are different spectra. Mm-hmm. By the way, I love that word, the plural of spectrum. I recently learned is spectra. Love huh. that. Sounds like a superhero. Yeah. Um, so it's quality. How is it on spec? How are you measuring quality? That's That's the first heady debate, right? Is like, we can sense it. The audience can sense it. Is it like, is it written to spec? These specifications are met exactly. Uh, Is it, there's this metric we're looking at. What does quality even mean? Yeah, but you should sense that this is good, right? You should have taste. Um, And you feel somehow that taste is decently met. Your vision for it is sort of met. Then there's quantity, how much of it, how often. Um, Different spectra. So like, if you have intentionality, if you are like, I'm going to do a lot of work, but also never get rid of my desire to do quality work, great. I would tell you to focus on quantity because through the act of shipping, you get better. You find yourself, you improve, you get breakthrough ideas, all these things, you build momentum, you get to the brilliance problem because you solve the momentum problem. And then you can decide, should I scale up or down with this quantity? Cause I'm a, I have the ability to do so. So I would say for those who have intention to be good, to serve the audience well, to say something that actually matters to the world, chase quantity. Cause naturally the person you are showing up a lot over time, that will happen. But to the person that's lazy, the person that doesn't care about the audience, the hucksters that are like bait and switching everybody, quantity is a real problem to the right. audience, Yeah. right? Because they don't really care about ever getting better. They don't really care about serving you, right? They're going to, I'm going to teach you to do something extraordinary despite no resources and no time. I'm going to overpromise or promise you the moon. I'm going to prey on your baser instincts all the time. And I want to amp up. So what you get are very visible people doing that. And then the methodology becomes publish something, take that something and create 20 tinier assets from that original something and put it across the internet. And what ends up happening and what people don't talk about is, sure, but if you if the first thing is crap, then all you're doing is taking smaller bits of crap and smearing it all over the world. Mm-hmm. Who does that serve, right? But if your intention is to be good, I don't know any way to do high quality work other than to do a lot of work. And eventually it's about like, you look back, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm better. You never reach quality. You never reach great. You never reach the best. You're just like, oh, every time I did it or over time anyway, directionally speaking, I got better. And then I have to ship something today and I hope that that persists, right? So it's never, you're never arrived. You're always arriving. Yeah. I always think like, you know, the people who uh, deal with imposter syndrome or perfectionism, they should probably just publish more, right? Like if you care at that level, if you're nervous, if you're self-conscious, if you really care about the quality of your work, you could probably publish more. The people who don't deal with that, they don't need that advice. Like they're, they're going to put it out there anyway, right? It's it's the people who maybe like struggle with that a little bit more and, and just amp up the pace. 
I found that a very helpful way to get over imposter syndrome is to frame the work not as what you know, you are not the expert, you are not the star. It's more what you found. Like I'm mm -hmm. asking this question. I went on a journey to dig up some stuff. And some of it I was shaking free from my own mind. And some of it I went out in the world and I actually found. And I'm holding up this thing and I'm like, I asked this question or I wondered this thing or I wanted to try and learn this. Like the act of writing is a great way to learn, to hone your thinking. Even if you think you know something, it still has to come out of your brain into word form. And in that process, you're sharpening your own thoughts. You're trying to make sense of it. You're finding new avenues, new phrases. And so you're saying, here, I'm holding up this container and inside is this thing I found. What do you think, right? Do you want this? And they go, no, that's not very good. What they're really saying is like, I don't like what you found. No problem. I can go find other stuff or I can go find other people who might want this stuff. But what they're not saying is you're not worthy. What they're not saying is we don't like you. They may phrase it that way. You may feel it that way. But I really genuinely think that the work of a creative or a creator is to find things, to dig up insights and stories and breakthroughs and all that clarity and connection, and then hold it up to the world and be like, I found this. And I don't really care if someone says I didn't find, like, because I'm worthy to find anything. Anyone can go and dig up stuff in the closet, in the dirt. So like, it doesn't make sense that I'd feel imposter syndrome because you're like, who, who am I to do this? You're just someone who went and found some stuff, right? It's not a referendum on your worthiness. That's a ridiculous thing. If you frame the work as not what I know, not who I am, but what I found. I love that. Um, I know we're we're coming up on time, but I wanted to shift real quick and repurpose the Tim Ferriss question. Who comes to mind when you think of the word successful? Um, I don't know. It's a really weird thing. I've never really, I don't really sit around thinking about success. What does success like, mean like, to you? What's the next project? For me, I think success means that I have had a say in how I spend my time. It's not that I control every little element of my work, but it's that I am being more proactive than reactive. And that allows me to make decisions that are aligned with my values, that allows me to self-express, that allows me to do all these other pillar pieces of the success equation for myself. But I think it's that if I look at my calendar, the bulk, if not the entirety of where I spend my time is proactively selected in my work. You get to lay claim to your your own universe, basically. Right. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a little bit like if you are at a corporation and people just like look at your calendar without you knowing and drop a meeting. Hated that. Right. That is Absolutely the exact opposite. hated that. Yeah. Right. So that is the exact opposite of success where like you're being puppeteered by others with other agendas. Even if you're like, that's a friend, that's a colleague I love. I love collaborating with them. This is a cool project. It is, you know, life is just, you're exhausting the time you have. And that's the, what, that's the most precious thing you have going. Yeah. For you. It felt a little violating sometimes. I'm like, this is hundred percent. Like you guys yeah. just take it. <laughs> One of my favorite coworkers ever would just not show up to those meetings and would not respond to Slack and would not respond to email. And I asked him once, I'm like, we're close and you don't do that for me. What's going on? Like, I'm guessing you definitely don't do it for these other coworkers that you're not close to. And he said, that's not my actual job. And if I deliver on my actual job, no one really cares if I do that stuff, or at least like my bosses don't care about that actual stuff. So whether you're independent and you have clients or an audience you're selling to, or you have uh, a boss and peers because you're in-house, you know, I, however you slice it, it is that when I look at how I'm, I'm spending my time, it feels more like investing that time than spending it, than it being exhausted in ways I didn't control. 
I really resonate with that. Jay, thanks so much. Um, where can people learn more about you? Where do you want to point them? If you're listening to a show, it's really a quick jaunt over to Unthinkable. So that's my narrative style show. Premise is really simple. It's stories of what happens in work when we stop listening to the best practices and start trusting our intuition instead. And you find some remarkable stories. Um, and all, it's never really unthinkable when you hear their stories. It's only unthinkable from the outside looking in. So the show is called Unthinkable. Uh, and then jayakunzo.com for all my writing, my books, my speaking, all of it. That's my home base. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is awesome. 